and welcome to episode 8 of Up and Away, the Australian Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Frangu. This week we have editor of Australian Flying Magazine, Steve Hitchin, on the show. His experience as an editor and aviation writer has given him the opportunity to cover some amazing stories and have some incredible experiences. Outside of this, Hitch is also an accomplished private pilot whose main focus when flying is to have fun. Once again, thanks so much for your support and remember to subscribe as well as follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Now, fasten your seatbelt and let's go. Hey Hitch, welcome to Up and Away. Thanks Chris, pleased to be here. No worries. That was the uh, third time I tried to do that intro with you. Oh, well, third time's a blessing, as they say. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but everyone will only hear the last one. Yeah, that's right. So tell me a bit about yourself. When did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation? Oh, look, I, as a kid, I always just wanted to fly aeroplanes. Um, there was no great inspiration to uh, go on and be a, a commercial pilot or anything like that. I just wanted to fly aeroplanes. Um, even as a, a kid in the 70s when it was still politically correct to play war games up the back of the primary school, throwing <laughs> yeah. all sorts of pine cones and things at each other. Yeah, I think I did that too. Yeah, um, I was always flying top cover in a Mustang, you know, and the other kids had no idea what the hell I was doing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, they've always fascinated me as a, a young bloke having models and so forth, but my family had always sort of told me, oh, it takes a lot of money to learn to fly, you know, it's out of your reach, you but uh, I was a member of the Scout Association, and they had an air activity centre which included teaching scouts to fly out at the old Casey Field at Berwick, which is uh, unfortunately now under Monash University Berwick campus. All right. Um, and that made, they they had volunteer instructors who did not charge. Wow. For their time. That's pretty. You cool. paid for the aeroplane. You didn't pay for the instructor. Consequently, I think I got my Cessna 150 um, TDX. I got heard about. $45 an hour. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah, which was fantastic. And realistically, that got me into flying because I wouldn't have been able to afford it any other way. Um, I grew up in a little town called Inverloch down on the coast, and there was not a lot of employment down there, certainly not a lot of employment that got you a lot of money. <laughs> you earned a living, but that was about it. You know, there was no um, industry in South Wales was closing down at the time. But I'd travel up to Berwick and do the, the flying up there. And uh, I think I mentioned earlier, I went on, went on to do my NAVs out of Long Worry with Tarago Valley School of Aviation or TVSA, as they are now known. And yeah, just went from there. I flew with several schools over the, uh, over the years. Always a private pilot, always self-funded. Um, flown with several schools out of Moorabbin. Some of them aren't there anymore. And just kept going, just kept going, you know, whereas I didn't have a lot of the... Uh, we call them boat anchors, I suppose, that can slow down the private pilot in their career. Yeah, like financial um, um, barriers. Financial, yes. Yeah, I didn't, uh, didn't have children or anything like that. So uh, I was able to earn money and spend it on flying as it came along. So yeah, I haven't got a lot of hours up. I've um, got nearly 800 now, but that's since 1985. It's not a lot. Um, I've just always kept on going, earning money, and um, just spending it on flying as I go along. Um, yeah, I've got uh, endorsements such as uh, multi-engine, but I wouldn't let me anywhere near a multi-engine aeroplane. <laughs> no, just don't, all right? All you multi-engine <laughs> owners out there, beware. Yeah, that's right. And uh, tailwind endorsements um, and a few other bits and pieces. Formation endorsement, there's a lot of formation flying. Uh, it is just the greatest thing you can ever do in an aeroplane. 
Um, look, it's okay to be taught to learn to fly, but one of the more important things that's often ignored is to be taught how to have fun with an aeroplane. Yeah, totally. And um, that's the journey I've been on really my entire career is learning how to have fun with an aeroplane. And I've been very fortunate during my time that I've had um, a lot of mates have been happy to come along on that journey with me and we've had a lot of fun. Yeah, I think most of the time everyone's goal is the airlines. So we're not often taught how to have fun or that's not really the primary focus uh, where we definitely should be focusing on having fun while we're flying. I mean, we're flying. Yeah, no, look, I agree. The, the PPL life is a heck of a lot more fun, I would say. I know there's probably a lot of CPLs out there that don't agree with that because they get paid to do their flying. Yeah, uh, well, um, I mean, but, getting paid is pretty good too. Well, it is Well, it is pretty good, but the, the beauty about being a PPL is the right to say, I'm not going up in that. Yeah, totally. It's something that CPLs <laughs> don't get, you know. Yeah, that's true. So what do you have to learn for formation flying? Well, you've got to learn not to hit the other aeroplane. Um, <laughs> it's a good first step. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually easier to fly close to an aeroplane than it is to fly further away from one. And the reason why that is, is you don't you only fly in formation if the other aeroplane knows you're there as well. Consequently, um, you can fly very close to them knowing that they know you're there and they're not about to do something really stupid and catch you off guard. Um, the leader is making turns left and right and that sort of thing. But what formation flying will teach you is that this mythical thing called the secondary effects of controls actually does exist. You know, when you're flying solo, by, or, or sorry, an aeroplane on its own, you don't understand exactly how much the secondary effects of controls actually come into play. The moment you have something else in the sky with you that you're trying to fly relative to, and, yeah, you can see it immediately. You put the nose down and suddenly the aeroplane in the front gets closer to you. <laughs> um, if you, uh, for example, apply more power, you'll find that that aeroplane is now starting to go downward, which is what you didn't want. So you have to use the controls and coordination. If you're going to apply a bit of power, you get, you're going to get a little bit close, but you're also going to get a bit higher. So as you apply a little bit of power, you move the stick forward a little bit at the same time in order to, to counteract that secondary effect of the control. Yeah, I guess it's like an in-sky point of reference or something. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's exactly what it is. And that the military, they take it down to an extremely fine art. They will say to you, to you, you have to fly so that the, the aeroplane in front of you, it looks like that rivet line is lined up with the four set of rivets on their flat. Yeah, wow. And you have to fly so they are sort of lined up. Um, and that, that's incredible precision. It's, it's out of our standard, unfortunately. Um, but we still have a heck of a lot of fun and we put on a really great display. And I guess the, the, uh, the strangest thing about it all is that it looks fantastic from the ground. Once you get up there, you know it's, it's organised mayhem at times. <laughs> <laughs> Look how graceful that looks. Oh, yeah, no, 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 it's not no, very graceful. Get up there. <laughs> but it's brilliant fun. We recently uh, became the first civil flying team ever to make a formation landing at Melbourne International. All right. That was done yeah. just after the first lockdown was eased. Yeah, I think I saw this on, on Facebook <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah, we, we had an absolute ball awesome. doing that. So, yeah, we like to do um, air displays and Anzac Day flyovers over the RSLs and things like that in formation. That's cool. Um, so, yeah, look, um, 
it's only about five to six hours to get the endorsement. But it's not the sort of thing you would go out and get straight away as a PPM. You need to learn to understand a lot more about the aeroplane first, and then the endorsement will become a lot easier. Um, the first thing that will really get you, the very first time you fly an endorsement, is you've spent your entire flying career to this point being told, stay away from that aeroplane. And now the guy in the other seat's going, get closer, get closer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of scary, isn't it? But no, it's one of the greatest fun things I'd say to anyone, go and get your formation endorsement because you get to work as part of a team as well. And uh, that, that, that that's a real buzz. It really is. So when you do this endorsement, do you have to have someone that's going to be in the other plane that you have to do it with? When you're doing your training, certainly, yes. Yeah, right. I, uh, for several um, new formation candidates, I've volunteered to be rabbit. So just by myself out the front, just leading them around the sky, then with an instructor. <laughs> Sweating and looking over your shoulder? No, but never. <laughs> because I know they've got an instructor with them, and I know the instructor won't let anything stupid to yeah, happen. Yeah, totally. So, no, I'd never look over my shoulder when I'm doing that. Um, occasionally, I might just to see how well they're going or what they're up to. But you, you trust the instructor's not going to learn anything stupid. Because the instructor wants to get home for a beer as well. Yeah, so. that's true. Yeah. So I guess as a leader, you have to be flying safe and predictably, hey? As a leader, you lead everything. Um, you are the safety officer in the sky. You're um, the chief navigator. You're the chief communicator. None of the other pilots are talking to um, ATC. They won't even be on the CTAF frequency half the time on arrival. Mm, wow. Um you do everything as a leader. You call the circuits for them. You call the moves left. You call the moves to the right. You call the formation changes. And as my instructor Murray likes to say, you've got to understand now that you're flying an aeroplane that's about the size of the playing surface at the MCG. Wow. And that's the sort of space you've got to allow. So it's no use making a, light, a right turn or something and skimming over the top of that ridge line. Yeah. When the poor people are falling behind you, are not going to fit over that <laughs> yeah, ridge line. That's true. Um, you're, you're looking out for the other traffic. They're not looking out for traffic. Their eyes are on you and nothing else. So you've got to be their eyes in the sky as well. Um, yeah, there is a good, there's a knack to leadership. You don't have to be a spectacularly brilliant formation part to lead, but you do have to have discipline and you've got to be able to fly straight and level reasonably well and discipline yourself to do that. If you've got a lead that can't fly straight and level, it's nearly impossible to fly the formation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, lead, leading is, uh, is a lot of responsibility, a lot of work. And if you're going into uh, controlled airspace, which occasionally we do, we went through a period some uh, months back of waiting till peak hour in a day and then flying up uh, Punt Road. Oh, wow. Just <laughs> all the people down below stuck in traffic had something to look at, us. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But if you're the lead, you've also got to deal with the airways clearances as well. Those coming on behind you have got their eyes stuck on you and are flying on you, doing nothing else. Sounds like a lot of work. So you're speaking to ATC, plus you're on a different frequency speaking to your team? Correct. Absolutely right. Yeah. Well, Most of the time they'll be on a different frequency as well, so you've got to use a flip-flop radio or better still have two comms and go through the, um, the comms panel. You do have those things you've got to juggle. Sometimes it's going to be good to have another person in the plane with you as a leader and let them do all the work if they know what's going on. Um, but most of the time, no, you will actually deal with all that yourself. Yeah, well, pretty busy. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a workload, but it's fun. So do you have a team name? 
the wedge tails. Oh, that's cool. Well, originally, uh, the, the Louisdale Flying Club has uh, the Blue Wedge Tail Eagle as their logo. So we named the team originally the Blue Wedge Tail, and then someone, Wedge Tail, sorry, and then someone looked at our hair colour and said, maybe we'd better be the Grey Wedge Tail. <laughs> <laughs> so in the end, we've just settled for the term, we're the Wedge Tails. That's cool. So it, it is a bit of fun. So do you have any cool uh, military-style call signs? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, I suppose the last Louisdale Air Show we did, which was in 2019, we did have a rather large formation we flew called a Balbo, and we flew the Balbo formation with various elements. So there was, like, the lead element was green element, the second one was yellow, I was red element and I was number two. So, yes, I was referred to as red two. That's pretty cool. That's cool. That's like Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's pretty cool being red two. Yeah. And as my leader, Bob said at the time, said it's even cooler being red leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there you go. I guess the yeah. next step now is to have uh, your name stenciled underneath the windows on your plane. Yeah, no, nah, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the airplanes are hired. I can't see that yeah, well, very well at all. That's true. Well, speaking of, what planes are you flying? Um, we normally fly in Warriors or Archers. Now, the reason why that is, in a formation, you always try and keep the plane's performance as close as you can to each other. Consequently, the most aeroplanes Lewdale have out there that are close together are warriors and archers. So we fly 151 horse warriors, 160 horse warriors, and the 180 horse archer. And the archers always tend to take up the rear because they've got the excess power, which is really good when you're at the rear. It's no good having the plane at the front, being, being capable of doing 125 <laughs> knots. Yeah, all these 105 knot warriors, as you say, just waving them goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> It's pointless doing that. So, yeah, but you try and keep them as close together as you can. With the military, of course, they use exactly the same types in virtually exactly the same condition. So they can just set power for this manoeuvre, you know, at 50% power on each aeroplane and there is no need to adjust the power in the manoeuvre because you've all got exactly the same power set and the engines are turning out exactly the same power for the same throttle setting and so forth. It's not quite that way with what we've got. You do have to do a little bit more massaging of the power. Um, but, yeah, you try to get them as close together as you can, and that usually means very similar types. It also looks better in the air. Yeah, that's true. It's not like some yeah. hodgepodge of uh, different aircraft. Oh, we, can, we could be a hodgepodge at times. We were a hodgepodge <laughs> the, the other day of a Cessna. Well, what did we take into uh, Melbourne? We took in um, – actually, Melbourne wasn't too bad. We had three uh, – two low-winged arches, an air tourer, a CT4 and a decathlon. <laughs> <laughs> decathlon. <laughs> the decathlon was great because it blew smoke. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and there was nothing like roaring down final and then a 3-4 Melbourne with smoke pouring out the back of the formation. A- ATC or Melbourne Tower would have been like, hey, that, that plane's on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a different story. But there is some footage on the internet of us doing um, a couple of orbits over our leader's house who was unwell at the time. So due to COVID reasons, he couldn't come out. And, uh, yeah, on the second pass, we got uh, um, the decathlon at the rear to blow smoke. That's cool. So it made a nice nice uh, circular ring in the sky. And as the formation leader said, and on the way, when after we completed the 360, we hit the tail of the smoke, which proved that we hadn't actually gained any altitude. Oh, right. We probably lost a little bit at all, uh, if anything. Yeah. 
but it, it was a um, nicely performed maneuver. That's a really good way to analyze your maneuvers, actually, because normally you're like in 3D space going, oh, I don't know where I am. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know how you've made the maneuver. Yeah, well, you'll, you'll learn when you start doing steep turns that uh, if you can hit your own wake at the end, yeah, right. you've done it right. Yeah. yeah. If you level out at the end and you don't get this little kick out of the tail, you've done something wrong, you've gained too much height, you've lost too much height. There's nothing more pleasing at the end of that little kick in the tail when you know you've hit your own wake. I'm writing it in my notebook now. You'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so it looks like you never really wanted to get a CPL or have a flying job in aviation. When I first started, 5% of the CPLs in Australia were working as pilots. Wow, that's crazy. The rest of them were doing other things. There was only the two airlines. There was uh, um, ANSET, sorry, and there was TAA. At the time, there weren't a lot of um, regional airlines out there. And, yeah, some of the 5% were actually working as, as pilots. So it was very discouraging. You'd have to go and do something else for a living and, you know, earn uh, money to, to keep on going with your uh, your lessons and so forth and doing the seven subjects and passing a CPL and being a class one medical to find you're still getting a job as a salesman somewhere. Mm, yeah. In that you know, 95 95% of Australia's CPLs were not flying. They were doing something else for a living. So I found that um, that I also preferred to, to not turn a hobby into an occupation, not to turn it into what I have to do for a living because then it becomes work, and work always gets you down no matter what it is that you're doing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I did it once selling motorcycles. I was a motorcyclist and I sold motorcycles for a living. So in the end, motorcycles became the thing that I did. So it's on weekends. The last thing I wanted to see was a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I've sort of got the best of both worlds um, doing what I'm doing now um, because I do get a, a lot of uh, opportunities to fly some magnificent machinery and be involved uh, very deeply in aviation at all levels but still maintain that privilege of being a private pilot and saying, no, nah, I'm not going today, and having a good time doing it too. So what then inspired you to get into aviation journalism? Uh, I was inspired to get into aviation journalism uh, probably by Shelley Ross. She'd only been at the magazine, I think, a year at the time, and I had done a bit of journalism. I'd been a, a journalist on a, a magazine over in London uh, around about 1990, a few years beforehand, and I did have a, a journalism, minor journalism qualification, what I would call it, and had done a bit of writing from time to time for local newspapers and so forth. And um, Shelley, of course, was offered the assistant editorship of the magazine under Doug Nancaro, I think it was, but she would correct me if I was wrong on that one. Yeah, that rings a bell from my episode the other week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it was under Doug. And, and I thought, you know, that's not such a bad gig. So I wrote something for them, which they published, and... Uh, Shell said, yeah, I really like what you wrote. Do you feel like you might like to write something else? And so I said, oh, yes, I can write something else and wrote it and sent it in. She promptly rejected it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, write something else. Not that. Not that, yeah, something else, but <laughs> yeah. not that. Um, and then I went on what's called the Reader Advisory Board, and I kept on persisting. I had read when I'd done my journalism training, particularly if you're a freelancer, persist. To get the first one knocked back is not the end of the world. Find out why it was knocked back and then present something else. Take into account what the editor said to you. So I did that. 
And then it started to snowball from there, and um, she started to ring me up and say, oh, can, we need something to do this. Can you do that? Said, yeah, I can do that. And and so forth. So it just sort of went from there, and about uh, 20 – it was just uh, before Shelley left, actually. They made me what's called a senior contributor, which largely meant that I had to have – at least one feature in every magazine. So I was committed to write something for every issue. Yeah, right. And uh, that got the ball rolling and that made me start thinking about, you know, I've got to constantly think about what I'm going to write about, plan things out a bit in advance. Um, and then Shelley moved on and there was a couple of other editors in there. Johnny Spears was one of them. Then a gentleman called Justin Gray. And uh, one day I got a contact from the publisher, who was Doug Nancaro, and Doug simply said, look, we need a new editor of the Australian Flying Magazine. We don't want to go and look for someone. We just come and do it. Um, at the time, I thought, well, I was doing a marketing role and uh, this was going to be a real lifestyle change in a number of ways. So I discussed it with my partner and we said, what the hell, let's go for this. So it took me out. It meant working from home. Um, but it's been a fantastic experience. And uh, I've always tried to uh, make the magazine each issue a little bit better than the previous one in some way or another. You don't always get it right, but as long as you keep trying, you're going to end up with a pretty good product in the end. Um, so, yeah, look, at the, uh, the whole thing just snowballed along like that. I kept my name in front of the um, magazine publishers, kept writing well and kept working with uh, Shelley on what she wanted to uh, from my work and what she wanted me to write about. And um, over time, as I said, they just felt that I would slot in very, very neatly into the role. So... I've been here now since March of 2012. Yeah, wow. So eight years. Yeah, eight and a half years. Yeah, yeah, half. <laughs> I don't know where that half year's gone. <laughs> that didn't happen that half, did it? <laughs> <laughs> totally. So t tell yeah. us about Australian Flying Magazine. How long has it been around for as a publication? Um, you know, what's it focus on? Well, Australian Flying has been around since 1963. Wow. One of my first jobs as editor was to bring out the 50th edition, which was September, October 2013. And having been only in the job for only a bit over a year, I felt like a bit of a fraud <laughs> <laughs> celebrating a magazine that had been around for 50 years. Um, but it's a general aviation magazine, so we focus on general aviation. There have been some times where we've sort of various editors have steered it away down little alleys and so forth, but ultimately in the end the readers keep telling us they want us to, to focus on general aviation. So you don't find much in the way of warbird news. In fact, you find almost nothing in the way of warbird news. Um, we don't do airlines. I, I do get a call from people in the airlines saying, you know, we've got this happening. Do you want to come out? And I go, no, thank you. You know, it's not something I'd ever use. Thanks for the idea of a bit of a junket or something, but no, I won't be coming along because I'll, I'll never use the material. Uh, however, having said that, we do sort of penetrate into the regional airlines a little bit, and we do that because that tends to be the first port of call for most CPLs uh, that have come through their training, is the regionals, such as Rex and Sharp Airlines and, uh, and various others. So we do a little bit of the regional airline stuff, but not a heck of a lot, only largely as far as it being an aspiration for the people who do read the magazine. And we do delve a little bit into business aviation as well, because business aviation is classified as general aviation. Um, so, yeah, we do play around with corporate jets. That can be a bit of fun. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, let's keep that bit around. That's that's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that can be a bit of fun. But, yeah, it's, it's general aviation. The majority of our readers are private pilots or recreational pilots who either own their own aeroplane or are hiring. And, yeah, we do anything related to that. Bit of helicopter work too. Yeah, general aviation is such a broad field. I think um, focusing just on that definitely would have its benefits. Yeah, I think that the, one of the reasons why the, the magazine is still out there now is because of that focus. Since I started uh, editor in March of 2012, seven other titles have folded. Oh, wow. Aviation titles have folded. And we believe that the reason why we aren't one of them as to why we kept going is because we keep that focus and we deliver to the readers the sort of material they want to read and we deliver to the advertisers the audience that they want to talk to. Um, that's always been the focus and that's why the magazine's still out there. So your role as the editor, what's that consist of? What do you have to do? An editor is a content manager, so I'm responsible for the content. That means uh, deciding what's going to go on the front cover. It means deciding what features we're going to run and which ones we are not going to run. It means um, commissioning the work, selecting a writer and offering that job to them. Or if uh, we get unsolicited manuscripts to accepting or rejecting unsolicited manuscripts, it means sourcing all of the images, those which the writers haven't um, sourced on our behalf. It means doing the layout, deciding what order they're going to go in. It means deciding where the adverts are going to be placed. And it means approving the final layouts as well, as well as handling the website and, and dealing with the website. And um, pretty much anything to do with the magazine falls into the editor's um, inbox, largely. And that's what an editor does. There are two types of editor in this world. There's those, the, the type that just edits text. And that is really a sub-editor's role. An editor is a, a manager. It's a publication manager more than anything else. And at the same time, I have to write my own stuff too. Yeah, I can see that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got some magazines in front of me and I'm like, ah, oh, yes, you've written this one, you've written this one. I've got a couple in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've got a couple in there. Keeps the cost down because I don't have to pay someone else to fill the page or something. <laughs> That's true. And you've got an editorial as well. Yes, yes, you always get the get the first say in the magazine. <laughs> you always, yeah, you always reserve that right for yourself. I read somewhere though that uh, it's probably from in one of your editorials that it's the first thing you read, but the last thing you write for the magazine. Is that right? It's the last thing I write, other than the content page. <laughs> yeah, of <laughs> the course. The content page comes <laughs> very last, but the editorial is the last one that I do, um, and that is largely because. Things change and move all the time. And I like to keep the editorial as fresh as it can be. And so when it comes down to the, okay, we need to publish this magazine now, will you please write the, the editorial and get it in? Um, there is um, nothing that might change between when the magazine hits the shelf when I write that. It hasn't happened yet. It may happen, you know, sometimes that something will happen and make you think, I wish I'd never written that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it's, I guess it's also like uh, you're not writing the editorial when you're looking at a whole bunch of blank pages. I keep I keep saying to people, writers, layout artists, even the salesmen, you cannot publish blank pages. Yeah. <laughs> right? If we've got 84 pages, we've got to fill them. Yeah. As simple as that. So what's the step-by-step -step process of releasing an issue? Um, what's your What's the first thing that you do? Well, that's the, that sort of is a very open-ended question because it sort of asks the question, when 
does an issue actually start? When is the beginning of the work on an issue? And it happens about one and a half issues earlier. In fact, even earlier than that, we start planning for what features we are going to run well in advance. Now, the last thing I want is to have finished one magazine and have it sent off to the printer and sit there and say, now, what am I going to put in the next one? That's no good. If you aren't already halfway through right, planning for that next one, you've got no chance. <laughs> so I'm going to let you in on a little secret here of mine, yeah. a terrible right secret. Uh, it's currently Monday the 21st of September and we are recording yeah. this episode, which will be released this coming Friday, the 25th of September. <laughs> and this is the earliest I've ever recorded an interview so far. <laughs> a friend of mine's recording uh, his podcast and um, we he's like, oh, I'm recording. Ep- what, what's this? Episode eight. Yeah. Episode eight. Right. And yes. um, I'm like. Yeah, me too. But he's only just released episode one. When I've just released episode seven, so he's way more advanced than I am in terms of like having stuff put aside and ready to be released. Yes. So definitely something you don't want to be doing in regards to your magazine. Yeah, no, you can't do it. It won't happen. And the thing with um, with uh, printing, of course, is somewhere up in Sydney, there's a very large printing press. Yeah. And it has a printing schedule, and our magazine is booked on. There's something like well and truly in advance. In fact, there are permanent bookings on this thing. And the last thing you want is for the printing press to roll to a screeching halt and go, well, where's the Australian flying? We need to go now. We've got everything. It's supposed to be here. Why isn't it here? We can't have the press doing nothing. You know something? We're going to bring that next job forward and then Australian flying will fit it in somewhere down the track. And that can mean getting late into the the distribution done late because the distributing company – they also know on a certain day of a certain month to go to the printer and pick up Australian flying. And these guys are lightning. They're there. They've got the trucks there. They're ready to go. They're looking for boxes. And the boxes have got to be there because the trucks are going without it. Look, to try and answer the question a little bit um, a little bit more succinctly, I suppose, what I do is I know the magazine's going to be a certain number of pages, so I've tried to make sure I've commissioned enough work to fill the pages. Then I make sure all the writers are happy. And I do keep tabs on from time to time, especially if I know one's time dependent. Like a writer might say to me, oh, I'm going up to Queensland on Saturday and we're going to test this aeroplane on Saturday and I should have the text to you on, you know, Tuesday afternoon for you to check. And I go, right, what happens if it's going to, what happens if it rains on that Saturday? Oh, we, we might be in a bit of trouble. Well, I can't print blank pages. <laughs> <laughs> so I need to know in as much in advance as I can if something like that is going to happen. I've even had to do it myself. I tested the Technam P2010 up at uh, out of Southport, magnificent aeroplane, but we literally did it in the eye of a storm. Wow. I think it was Cyclone Susie or something like that. Yeah, wow. It was coming down the coast and there was this um, influence on the weather over the coast, which turned into really, really bloody horrible weather. But we got on the radar and realised, oh, there's going to be a little gap here. <laughs> so in pouring rain, we squirted out of Southport, got the flight test flight done, squirted back into Southport and sat there watching the teeming rain with a coffee. And I drove back in the teeming rain to Brisbane that night, happy as hell. And I still couldn't believe we did it. But we literally dragged it in Iverstorm. So, yeah, look, make sure all of the everything's planned out, that I've got enough, um, and have a bit of a backup in your mind too, just in case one of the features falls over for whatever reason. 
have something in the back of your mind, okay, if A, then what am I going to do? If A happens, am I going to go to B? But when it comes time to actually put it together, it's a case of getting all the text in. Is it the right length? That's step number one. Have they given me the right length of um, a word, word count? Do I have enough images? Are the images good enough? That is important now. People still think that you can take good images on your iPhone. No, not for print. Yes, you can for computers, but for print, they've got to be that little bit better than that. Are they variable enough, the images? Are they illustrative of the text? Do they fit in with the text very, very well? That's what I'm looking for. If not, I might have to massage some things a little bit here and there. Then I put it all into the server and I do things like write the headlines, write the captions, all that sort of thing, and then send it off to be laid out. And up there in Sydney, they'll sit there and I say, right, we're going to make the page look like this. We're going to put the picture there. We're going to drop this here. We're going to put a nice bit of a, a, a breakout down here or a pull quote up in the corner. And that's what they do. They're layered artists. They know visually what, what looks really, really good. And you have to cut this balance between text, image, white space. Uh, you've got to have all those in exactly the right proportion. So those are the sort of things that you do, and you do that with every layout. And I send it back to Sydney, and they make their little adjustments up there, and they send it back to me, and I green tick it. And we do that with every page. I read each article three times. The initial read-through, first layout read-through, second layout read-through. And I'm still picking up things, little bits that are wrong, little commas that are out of place. Have you ever picked up any of those when you've got the magazine in your hands and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> any editor will tell you that's when you pick up the most. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to read it. I'd just be like, all right, it's out there in the world now. It exists. I'm yeah, look, I it. keep quoting this this one mistake that was uh, I made. I wrote, um, I did an interview with a gentleman who first broke the sound barrier in an aeroplane. And um, it was interesting at the time that it happened that the Americans didn't tell anyone because they considered that it was secret. So it was two years after it had been done did they actually uh, tell the world they'd been supersonic. And I wrote the line um, that there was no fanfare, no announcements, no fanfare, um, no speeches in Parliament and so forth. And Shelley, who was the editor at the time, took that thing, there were no speeches in Parliament, and made it the pull quote and put it in big letters. It wasn't until I looked at it and I read, you're an idiot, Hitchin. The Americans don't, <laughs> don't have, have a parliament, parliament, they have a Congress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, it had to be broken out in the, in the big pull quote, didn't it? So. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've both had a bit of a laugh over that, you know, but the number of phone calls we got was zero. Yeah. Absolutely zero. <laughs> but, yeah, it was so uh, – you're still capable of doing things like that. And it's an old saying, you never see them – Typo, it's printed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've got the uh, layouts all green ticketed. Uh, you've read everything three times. Uh, is this a time when you then hand it over to the printers? Yep, that's um, that's the worst time when you have to let it go. Yeah, that's true. It is a, it is a case of just letting go. You've worked so hard on this thing, and then you've got to say, I'm not going to work hard on this anymore. I'm not going to do anything else to this. It's got to go to press right now. It's like just closing your eyes and hitting the send button on an yeah. email. <laughs> Let's hope it's all okay. You know, I can't check it anymore. It's got to go now. So um, so ultimately, yeah, there, there are errors still sneaking into the, the magazine in places like that. You're always working on constantly, but 
I have this theory that there is no such thing as the perfect document, but that's not a reason to stop trying to make one. Totally. So how do you pick what stories to cover? Um, how do you strike a balance between all the areas of general aviation that the magazine covers? It, again, it's that focus. The first thing I think is one of two things. Uh, is the readership going to be interested in this? Or is it something that they need to know? It's hard to be interested in something you don't know exists. So sometimes I will make that call on uh, behalf of the readership that this is something I think that they should need to read about. When I was um, first started writing for Australian Flying, I was put on what's called the Reader Advisory Board that used to exist at the time. It was a, group, a bunch of readers who get together and critique every magazine and come up with ideas for features and so forth and feed it all back through to Shelley. And when she put me on that board, I said, I don't believe you guys have selected me for that advisory board. I'm just a low-time PPL. I just like smashing around the sky in hired aeroplanes. And she came back to, that's exactly why we put you on that board, because you are typical of our readership. And I'm still, I believe, typical of our readership. So if I find it interesting, I think I've got fair justification at times to find that the majority of the readership will find it interesting. Or if I think that something, wow, we need to know that, or we need to, to look at this um, from a different angle, well, I'll get out there and say, look, we'll look at this from a different angle. So largely that's how it's done. Um, there are some articles that I, ideas come to me that I've just got to turn down because we've done surveys and things in the past, and we know that the readership have told us that's not something that we'd really um, really like to read about. Um, we used to do a, a series called Pilots, which were profiles of individual pilot, well-known pilots. And uh, we stopped doing that because in the survey it came absolutely stone motherless last. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, I thought we had some really good yarns. Um, but no, the readers said they're not really talk to us about aeroplanes. Talk to us about us. And I suppose that, that broke them away from us a little bit. There's an old saying that everybody's favourite topic in this world is themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So I try to write, I think, keeping that in mind so that people can relate to the story a little bit. And I, I sort of cascade that over the selection of stories as well. Do I think the readership is going to be able to relate? Mm, that's true. So what's your process in regards to researching a story that you're going to be writing about for the magazine? Writing is not about what you know. Okay, it's really important for, for writers out there to understand it's not about what you as a writer know about a subject. What it's about is whether or not you know who knows. So it's all about finding the right experts because the writer, you are never the subject matter expert unless it's a a flight test that you've done yourself, someone else out there knows more about the subject than you do. You need to find those people. And it may take a few phone calls um, to do that. But identifying the people who know uh, is one of the most important things and getting getting them to cooperate again with the article. Most people do. I've had one person knock me back um, as far as contributing to an, art, an article or providing expert uh, material. Aviation has a lot of experts. The biggest trigger is to find the ones who are right. If you're doing something on on twins, I went and got my twin engine endorsement yeah. only because I wanted to be able to talk to people about twin engine aviation and understand and have them know that I understood what they were talking about. I went and did some aerobatics, so I didn't get the endorsement. I went and did some aerobatics for the same reason, so that 
if I was going to write about aer aerobatics at any stage, that the experts I spoke to in interviews would know that I had a little bit of background. I knew enough to know what I did know and knew enough to know what I didn't know. So selecting the, the um, experts is important. Then the second thing I think about is what is, what's it going to look like on the page? I'm already thinking about that when I'm writing. What photos do I need? What are the main points of this article that we're trying to get across? How do I get photos or illustrations of those main points? What is it that I have to do to make this look really, really good on the page? And believe it or not, at that time, I'm already thinking about what the title of the story is going to be too. And particularly the big, what some people call the hero pick, what we call the intro pick or the establishing pick, that big one that opens any feature, that's got to be a very, very good photo because it's going to be run very, very big. And it also has to illustrate in one image what the entire story is about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you need to think in advance. You know, sometimes you only get one shot, one go at getting an image like that. So, you know, you've got to get it. I guess the point of that is to, uh, you know, really grab the audience and be That's like, what it's there for. hey, this is the yeah. article you want to be reading right now. That's exactly what it's there for. It's a sales pitch. Yeah, it's it's a sales pitch to ask people that you need to read this this feature. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, thinking about all those sort of things as you're writing it and then you get and bash it all together, make sure that it flows and do all that writer stuff that you do and turn the whole story into to something that um, is going to be easy for people to read, entertaining for people to read and is accurate. That usually means throwing out 70% of the material you've got. Yeah, right. That's a lot. Yeah, if you, if you do a one-hour interview with someone, you now have enough material for about 10,000 words, but our standard features are 2,500 words, so all of a sudden you've got to lose 75%. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the way it is. So you've got to also learn what to include, what to exclude, and sometimes you either have even have to scratch their head and say, yeah, I know, I know he was an expert, but I'm not sure that's right. So you've got to go to someone else and say, so-and-so said this, you know, a silent expert, so to speak, and I'll turn around and said, no, he's not quite right about that. Take it back to them and say, were you actually referring to this? And quite often the experts will say, oh, I, I didn't make it very clear to myself, did I? Yes, no, that's right. It's got to be done like that. Thank you for coming back and correcting that doesn't happen very often, not if you pick the right experts at the start. That is an important thing, picking the right experts. So what's been your favourite or most exciting story so far? My favourite and my most exciting are two different stories. Oh, well, let's do both then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I can't reverse it. We had a, an Australian Flying Forum, Writers Forum, a few nights ago. And I was this very very similar question was put to me, so I've got to give it the same. Oh, I did watch that, and I was hoping that you would say this story. It's a really good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my favourite is definitely the um, the interview in two thousand seven I did with Chuck Yeager. That would have been awesome. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeager is a very unique character. He's very very um, confident. He's definitely your A type personality. His super A type personality. And it was a little bit um, daunting to be taking him on on his own subject because the interview was about him. So one of the, the requirements when you interview Jaeger, and this is not a philosophical thing, this is a requirement, you will not get the interview if you do not do this, is you must read both of his books first. And I thought, that's a classic question. Thank you, Chuck. You've just given me my first question I'm going to ask you. Why the hell do we have to read your bio? <laughs> 
<laughs> did you ask him that? I did. Didn't make the. It didn't. That was one of the things that didn't make the final oh, cut. Right, yeah. was, there was just too much more. But he said because he said one day he said I sat down in front of a, a young journalist, and um, we started the interview. She started her recording. The first question was, "So tell me, what are you famous for?" Yeah. And he, he said, "I got up and walked away." Uh, he said, "I was not going to explain to to this person who I was." Or what I've done. Yeah. You know, this is an interview going nowhere. What am I even talking to them for? So he's walked away. So now he says, I want you to read both my bios. And that really helped because that gave me a lot of questions to write down. I thought, oh, I'm going to ask him that one. You know, as I went through the bios, yes, this is fantastic. Great background work. So I guess from his point of view, it worked really, really well. Uh, but as we, as I arrived at the, um, the table, he presented me with a um, magazine that had talked about how the British had helped the Americans break the sound barrier by giving them the secret of the all-flying tailplane. Now, there is nothing that's going to angry up the blood of Chuck Yeager more than telling him <laughs> that the British had anything to do with breaking the sound barrier. Yeah. And he put this in front of me, so I want you to read that. So I read it. And he said, what do you think? And I thought, thanks, hand grenade straight up. <laughs> so I said, my recollection, General, is that you don't believe a word of that. You damn straight I don't believe a word of that. <laughs> and off he went on this tirade. And I thought, I've got away with this. That's awesome. <laughs> Absolutely got away with it. Definitely this. dodged that, hey. <laughs> yeah, but as I began to, to talk with him, I realised he's an incredibly confident person. Self-belief is off the charts. Um, he once flew a uh, wing of an Aerocobra, a P-39 Aerocobra, through a tree because the tree needed trimming. So, and I did say to him at the time, said, weren't you worried about the damage to the aerocobra on the way through? He said, oh, they just fixed that. And I'm thinking, but you could have torn a wing off. Oh, I knew the wing would take it. You know, and he said, that's the trick. He said, the, the trick about being in this world is that you can, you can get away with anything provided you're always right. And I've had the luxury of being always right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I'm not sure that I'm going to actually be able to write about this bloke. But, but two things came out as I went through the feature. One of them was he's very, very dedicated to duty. Duty meant a big thing to him in his world. And the second thing that really came out is that uh, he believed in the Air Force and he believed in repaying what had been given to him. So hence he stayed on an Air Force wage from 1942 through to 1975. Most of his contemporaries left the Air Force and took up lucrative testing jobs in the civil world at that stage. But he didn't. He stayed in the Air Force his entire life. And I did ask him why that. And he said, because he said it's not so many words. He basically said, because I don't have to pay to fly aeroplanes. He said, I say to people, if you're prepared to bleed a little bit for your country, your country will give you all the airplanes you want. <laughs> it's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, it is. But that is a very intense character, believe me. But it came down, and as I said you know, on the forum the other night, I highlighted and deleted the entire article the night before it was due and started again the night before it was due. I was struggling to put it all together. I didn't want to make it simply a chronological story. I wanted something a little bit more about who what made up this super A-type personality. Well, he seems like such an interesting character. You kind of want to dive into that. A lot of people don't like him. A heck of a lot of people don't like him. Well, apparently him and Neil Armstrong didn't really like each other. You know, like from Neil's view, they probably got along. From Ch Chuck Yeager said to me, Neil Armstrong, great engineer, not much of an airplane driver. 
It's <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. pretty funny. <laughs> um, don't get it. This don't get him started on the subject of Neil Armstrong. Um, like he said, he had great respect for him as an engineer. Yeah, yeah. But and he always said that the reason why they made him the the um, commander of the Apollo Eleven mission that if something went wrong, it was going to be an engineer that brought him home. It wasn't going to be a pilot. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it was going to be someone who could work the issue on the spot and bring it home. And it wasn't going to be a hotshot jet jockey. It was going to be a great engineer. Yeah, and that's what Armstrong was. Mm. But yeah, he tells stories. There's still, if you read between Jaeger and Armstrong, they're always arguing about who was it who got the plane bogged in the middle of Smith Lake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? I've heard about if you read Armstrong's <laughs> version, he said we both got it bogged because we both decided to have a go. If you read Jaeger's version, he said I told Neil not to land on that lake. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? It was their world. Yeah. Um, yeah, but everything Jaeger delivered from such a, uh, a position of great strength. You know, if, if not he to question the likes of Armstrong and Crossfield, then who can? Uh, and, yeah, it was challenging in the end to, to write something I was reasonably happy with. And even when I sent it off, I thought, yeah, I really hope I've done a good job. And I didn't know that I'd done even a half reasonable job until I got an email from Chuck Jaeger saying, can I put that up on my website, please? And I thought, yeah, you've done all right. So that remains my favourite. Most exciting? Well, it was blasting around France at 31,000 feet in the TBM 930 turboprop. Yeah, right. That sounds awesome. That was just brilliant. Um, I think I'm a turboprop man. I just love them. I love the sound. They're so (laughs) cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was just really, really great. This thing is kitted up, full automation, as much as you possibly want. And it responded so beautifully and landed so beautifully. I can't believe I squeaked the wheels on the first landing on a turboprop, you know. That's awesome. Now, people do say to me, oh, hang on, you flew the Cirrus SF-50 Vision jet as well. Mm, that's also cool. Why isn't that the most exciting thing you did? You know, it's a jet. No, yeah, it was. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. But I guess I like a propeller out the front. Yeah. You know, I like something big and whirring out the front of an aeroplane. And... To me, the vision jet, we did some magnificent things in it. You know, you can't believe an aeroplane like that. You can give a, a, I think it's a 25-degree nose-down pitch with the gear and flaps out. The airspeed goes up to about 120 knots, but the rate of descent is about 5,000 feet a minute. Whoa. And it just, it just plunges out of the sky, but always <laughs> wow. in absolute control. That's cool. You know, they're just doing that in the corporate jet, just frightening living daylights out of you. But the vision will do that. Yeah. So it's tough to pick between those two, and the, the vision was great fun. It lands beautifully, having trailing link undercarriage on it. But no, I, ca- I can't get past the TBM 930. Yeah, I reckon it's pretty cool. It was it was definitely the most exciting thing I'd ever, and to have it done in France. Too. Yeah, what an experience. Yeah, and have to negotiate all the controlled airspace and the military airspace and that sort of biz, though. Uh, it was just a delight. It was just great fun. So that's my, my favourite, my most exciting, two different articles. Cool. Well, is there something that you've always wanted to cover but you haven't had the opportunity yet or you sort of missed the opportunity? Yeah, I wouldn't say I missed the opportunity. I haven't had the chance yet. It's going to be really hard to do. I'd like to get to Antarctica. Oh, I'd love to do that. The guys flying the helicopters down there Yeah. and flying to and from the, the um, Blue Ice Airfield down there. I would love to cover what they're doing. But you've got to go for a month at a minimum, I think it is. Mm, yeah, right. If you do get permission to go, and they do take um, artists down there um, from time to time. So um, it is feasible, but the question is, can I be away from work in the magazine for a month? Yeah. 
because that is the minimum time you're on the ice. So, yeah, I'd really love to get that together and um, get down there and tell the story of what those guys are doing down there. Yeah, that'd yeah. be cool. Mm. I was actually watching this show last night. It was like a weather show or something where these people were flying twin otters down in Antarctica. And I was like, oh, that looks so awesome. And it'd be such a cool experience to uh, go down and do that. Yeah. Uh, except, yeah, in this show, they got like stuck in some snowstorm or something for like 24 hours or something crazy like that, even though snowstorms are very, very rare in Antarctica. Um, yeah, it would be a pretty cool thing to do, I reckon. Look, another great feature I did, which is also good fun, was flying around the South Island of New Zealand. Because around there you fly below the mountain peaks, you follow rivers and things up valleys, and you, you never do it without someone who's got local knowledge, good local knowledge, or you can end up basically a disappointing smear of metal up against a wall <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> if you get it wrong over there. But you're flying around Mount Cook and places like that, and I did it with a company called Fly in New Zealand out of Wanaka. And they were absolutely fantastic, 180-horse Cessnas. Um, and you know, flying up Milford Sound from the coast side into Milford Sound that way and following all the procedures for arriving safely at Milford Sound and landing on a beach, Big Bay Beach, it was just fantastic. It was just a real, real buzz, that one. I recommend anyone to go over and learn to fly around mountains, learn how to do it safely and have a great time doing it, flying around Mount Aspiring, around Mount Cook, uh, it's just a real buzz. So that one was great. Another one I did with uh, Becca Helicopters up at um, Sunshine Coast was work with night vision goggles. Went out in the Bell 206 out the Stradbroke Island and uh, flew with night vision goggles at night with permission from ATC to have all their lights shut down. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, it was just fantastic. Wow. Just brilliant. Uh, thanks to Mike Becker and, and Kim Jorgensen who I flew that with that night. You know, doing things like sitting over the top of the um, the Pacific Highway with the lights turned off, the night vision goggles on, just hovering and understanding that all of those cars down there on the highway, they've got no idea we're here. <laughs> yeah. They don't have the first wow. idea that we are here. You know, it was, yeah, it was a real buzz. So, um, yeah, don't mind working with helicopters as well. Yeah, helicopters look like a ton of fun, hey? Yeah, they are. They're definitely a ton of fun. It's an, It's another world as far as piloting skills go. I read a book years ago um, called Chicken Hawk about Viet, uh, pilots in Vietnam. And one of the guys described flying a helicopter as like putting butter on the soles of your feet and trying to stand on a bowling ball. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly looks like it. It's a very, very finely balanced thing. And other pilots talk about um, yeah, them sometimes being so touchy that all, all you have to do is think about where the, the aircraft has to go and it responds to your thoughts more so than your hands. Yeah. You know, if you turn to the right, like, it's going to go that way. Yeah, that's <laughs> just, <true. laughs> just because of the touch in your hands. And uh, I did some work also with professional helicopter services down at Moravin flying a little Schweitzer 300. And, yeah, I learned all about those sort of things. I thought, you know, a lot of respect to helicopter pilots. This is uh, great hand-eye coordination yeah. <laughs> required. Um, but, yeah, it's just, just superb fun. Superb fun. The first time I ever went in a helicopter was in February this year in Hawaii, actually. Oh, yes. And, yeah. um yeah, we did this uh, sightseeing flight tour in Kauai. And the entire time I'm sitting right behind the pilot going, how are you doing this? This is yeah, insane. And just watching yeah, the yeah. crazy coordination that you need to do this. Yeah. And we're getting so close to cliff faces and mountains. It was insane. Well, I already had my PPL by the time I flew. It was in a helicopter for the first time. And it was at uh, up the Shotover River in New Zealand. 
Oh, cool. And they loaded us all into a helicopter on the side of this mountain and then backed it off the mountain until over the valley. And I'm being a PBL, you know, fixed wing PBL, I'm sitting there going, aren't we going a bit slow? <laughs> <laughs> We're keeping on the airspeed, boys. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. wrong. This is wrong. We should be going faster. <laughs> Yeah, helicopters, eh? <laughs> um, so have you ever had to put together a story that uh, on a topic or something that you or your staff just didn't want to cover? Like you couldn't hand it off to anyone? Probably happens every second or third issue. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I get them. And look, they're the stories that are um, not so much stories but um, things on technology. You're either a technophobe the technophile, sorry, or you're not. I tend to fall into the technophobe category rather than the technophile category. And when it comes to talking about things such as ADSB and using all sorts of acronyms like UAT and extended squickers and things like this, and you just glaze over and go, I hope my expert's right because I haven't got the first idea what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so in-depth technology articles, um, they can be a bit like that. You stick your hands up and say, you know, something like, who wants to write about um, transponders? And there's just silence in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but it has to be done, so it tends to fall with me. Um, yeah, look, it, it, it's usually those articles, the incredibly technical ones mm. that, um, yeah, we, I don't get much call for. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into aviation journalism? First of all, there are many... Well, there have been over the years many aviation journalists who aren't pilots. So a pilot is not necessarily a prerequisite for it. A passion for aviation is definitely, if you're not really, really into aeroplanes, you're going to find this really hard to do. <laughs> That's true. Unless you're very into transponders. Yes, unless you're super into <laughs> Then have I got an article for yeah, you? Gig every week. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, I say to people, First thing you've got to do is got to have a passion for aviation, but you don't have to be a pilot. To be an editor of Australian Flying Magazine, you probably do have to be a pilot. But as an aviation writer, no, you don't. Um, you need to do two things. I know it sounds very simple, but people can forget these two things. You have to read and write. Reading is important as writing. You have to read, 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 read voraciously. Then you have to write too. And I did make the comment the other night that most people who come out of high school can write perfectly well when they come out of high school, and then they go to university and stuff all that up. What I meant by that is there's academic writing and there's writing for entertainment. Academic writers or business writers write for information priority. Yeah. What we do is, yes, we want the information in there, but our priority is entertainment. So can you write in an entertaining style? convey the information in an entertaining way. That is the most important thing. That's true. So I guess I'll get rid of my Harvard referencing and all those sources and yep. footnotes. And... Forget Chicago manual style, mate. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no footnotes. Yeah. Not happening, right? No. So, yeah, look, um, yeah, write something. I do get people coming to us and saying, oh, I've got this idea for an article. Would you like me to write about it? And my first thought is, well, can you write? I know you believes that you can write because you've approached me, but I don't know whether you can actually write for entertainment. Yes, you might be a corporate writer. And often they say, oh, I've done corporate writing. Yeah, yeah, I've done corporate writing and uh, 
Uh, I've done this and I've done that. And I'll give an example of a paper I wrote for a symposium over in Hawaii a couple of years ago. And I'm just glazing over thinking, what if you wrote that was for pure enjoyment? And usually you get a bit of silence at the other end. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's it. Remember, we write for enjoyment, enjoyment of our readership. So it has to be conveyed that way. Always look at the publication you're writing for. Don't just write something and then try and flog it around out there to see who wants it. Target a publication. Is it suitable for their style? Have a look at the way they do even the most pedantic things. Do they use crossheads, for example? Because I find people who are used to writing for academia or for business will put in a crosshead that says that is about 13 words long. That is no good for publication that is set over four columns. You're going to end up with a subhead that takes up about six column inches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So we have a look at the way they're used. It's simple things like that. Write your own heading. It may not get used, but write it anyway. Write your own intro. Even suggest a pull quote. Write your captions. Make sure all the images you're sending through are credited. And remember this. The person who pressed the shutter owns the image. There might be an image of you, but you don't own it because you didn't press the shutter. Okay? Always make sure you know who owns the image and make sure that you have the right to submit it to that publication. When I get in something like that, the first thing I understand is that this person has read our magazine. They've taken the time to read our magazine. They've taken the time to know what we're about. So the fair chance they've matched this feature very well to the way we do it. Therefore, lazy editor such as myself is not going to have to put as much work into it. (laughs) Okay? After a while, I read it years ago, that two things will get an unsolicited manuscript over the line immediately. And they are the writer's name, the headline, because that's what will grab you. Some writers, you just know as soon as it comes in from someone. If I got a submission from Shelley Ross tomorrow, I'd go, right, that's going in straight away because I know it's from Shelley, right? Same with Kathy Maxted. Um, it'll go in straight away in tomorrow because I know how good those, those guys are. I know how professional they are. They know I have to put limited work into their, their work once it comes in. And the other one is a head. If you can write a really, really good head that leaps out, that means you know what a headline's for, and it means that if you know what a headline is for, then you know what the article is about. The other important thing is the first word. I say to people, the first word's always got to do some work. And there's a general rule, that doesn't do any work. <laughs> yeah. So please don't start out a feature with that. If you do... If you do start out a word with the, the next word has to be a blinder. Yeah, for sure. It's really got to be a blinder. So like the killer bees. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, killer bees. Yeah. Got me on that one. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. It, it's got to be an, an absolute blinder because they say that you've got one paragraph out of a reader. If you haven't got them in the first paragraph, they're going to turn the page. Yeah. Read something else. Um, so, yeah, you've really got to grab them the first. The opening is everything. As I said to one writer I had the chip a few years ago, I asked him to write a story for me about a particular event that had been on, and he opened with the date of the event. And I stopped right there. I didn't read the rest of the article, 
and I sent a note back to him and said, general rule, the most important thing about any event is not the day on which it was held, generally. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and he came back and said, you want me to rewrite the start? I said, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the bit about being a writer is in the end, all that gets shown is the good stuff. Yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> because the delete button is your best friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've deleted so many openings in my career. You find your own voice. Everyone else writes in a different style. Make sure it's not a style too remotely from the, the um, magazine itself. And listen, I've got to disappoint a lot of writers out there. But this is the honest truth. When you write a feature, it's not about you. So the chances are I'm going to want your feature in third person, not first person. Mm. You are not the hero of the story you're writing about. Sorry. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> but there are some writers who find it easier to write that way, so they want to write that way. I did, I did, I did this, I thought this. But the reality is you do, you're setting yourself up for to be an expert when you do that. Mm, that's true. And it's very hard to, to blend in first person with the thoughts of an expert. Unless it's an experienced article like a flight test. I, for example, am not a certified test pilot. So when I test an aeroplane, I talk about what I think, what I felt, um, rather than talking about, yes, well, I think the uh, loading on the control during a 60-degree steep turn was probably a couple of pounds more than I would have liked it to No. Okay, the controls were a bit heavy. Yeah. Okay. I felt the controls were a bit heavy. Mm. Uh, or I felt that this should, that, that sort of thing's okay because you're not an expert and you are trying to put the reader into the aeroplane with you. Other than that, it's pretty much got to be third-person work because you're not the expert and the story's not about you. So they're, they're the major tips. And most importantly, read stuff, write stuff. So I'd like to finish the podcast with a few fun questions. The first being, what's been your most memorable flight so far? I was speaking to Deborah Laurie a few weeks ago and she was saying that it could be enjoyable, memorable, like a scenic flight or something, or maybe nail biting. So I'm wondering if you have either or or both. Okay. My favorite flight so far, and it was one that shouldn't have worked, but we planned it out. We put in our all of our back doors and it worked. At the end of the flight, I've never been so exhilarated. It was a flight from Rawnsley Park to Lilydale in a Cherokee 6 with a slight side trip to Port Augusta for fuel. Yeah, right. Now, why we didn't get, because of rain, we didn't leave Rawnsley until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, getting closer to 4 o'clock. So at that stage, we had decided that we were probably going to have to stop off overnight due to the last flight. It was in November, so we did have the light till about quarter past 8 at Lilydale. And we had to go to... Um, to get fuel at uh, at Port Augusta, and that was a bit of a challenge in itself. I today to this day, and the only pilot I know who's landed a corn in South Australia <laughs> because cloud forced us to get on the ground and rethink what we were trying to do, which we did. So we just landed at Corn Airport. Um, then we realised how we'd get through to Port Augusta. Could we do it safely? Yes, we did. We got fuel. Then we thought, right, we're going to head to Renmark. We'll check at Renmark what we're going to do from here on in as far as fuel goes. So we got airborne at Port Augusta. 
to find that we had an 80 knot tailwind. Whoa. And we were at Ron's, uh, sorry, not Ron's, <laughs> at Renmark before we knew what was going on. Wow. <laughs> and got the plane fueled again. And we had the option of staying over at 6 p.m. by that stage. And we're looking at two and a quarter hours to get from Renmark in South Australia to Lewedale on the Cherokee 6. We did the maths. thought, if this wind keeps up, we can do this. And we said, okay. We, fi- we figured the worst thing that was going to happen is we're going to have to land and spend the night at Bendigo. That was going to be the worst thing that was going to happen. Hmm. And we got up there up to about um, eight and a half or nine and a half, I forget what, what we're at, picked up this 80-knot tailwind, and we just went like stink. <laughs> we had a close enough to a ground speed of 200 knots wow. at one stage there. that's crazy. It just blasted us by the time that we – our first checkpoint was Hopeton. We thought, you know, are we still on time to make Lilydale by Hopeton? If not, perhaps we need to think about diverting to Hopeton. How's the fuel going? How's the time going? And before we knew what was going on, we were also looking at the cloud. So we had the camera at uh, Bendigo up on our iPads in the plane looking at the camera. We got overhead Bendigo at around about 20 past seven. And at that stage, we knew we were home. Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Rolled onto the deck at Lillardale 10 minutes past eight, which was a good 20 minutes before last light. We'd done uh, Port Augusta to Lillardale in about three and a half hours. Wow, that's awesome. In a, in a, in a, in a Cherokee 6. Um, and to this day, I still think back that it worked. It worked. I cannot believe that flight actually worked. <laughs> it shouldn't have, we yeah. shouldn't have got home Lillardale that, that night. We had no right to. Most of the people on that journey who were uh, VFR, because it was a club trip, mm. had stayed overnight at, at uh, Renmark. Yeah, right. Yeah, they were all in the pub at Renmark um, on the red wine by that stage. <laughs> and I do remember one of them was telling us that they were following us on Avplan. And they're like on an Avplan, they're sitting there at dinner at the pub at Renmark watching us. And they said, <laughs> said, the guys, one of the guys said, I couldn't believe it. I'm sitting there with the red wine saying, these bastards are going to make this. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. These bastards are actually going to make this. And, uh, yeah, we, we got home. So, yeah, that was the most exhilarating flight. It was it was just the fact that it worked. There were so many challenges thrown up to us that day, and we worked the challenges. We put our back doors in place. We had a number of places we could have called it quits anywhere along that journey. We kept rechecking our speed, rechecking our time, rechecking our fuel all the way home. And it worked. It worked magnificently. That's so good. We overcame every hurdle and we got it all right. And to be home at Lillardale that night, laughing, I said, we put the plane away in daylight, but I had to um, load the car in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) So often you hear of these, like, uh, you know, flights where you've got these contingency plans and plan B, and you're going to land at this place. Or, you know, and you should have landed when you didn't. Yes. Or, you know, yeah. you, you shouldn't have gone and done this thing. Yeah. Or I wish I had this plan yes. in place. But to have all the plan Bs and everything in place, but not needing to need them. Yeah, plan A actually worked. It was incredible. Yeah, it's so rare. <laughs> so do you have a nail biter? A nail biter? Yes, it was my first time I ever took an aeroplane away and did not bring it home on the same day. It was 2001, late September of 2001 to be precise. There was the Royal Australian Air Force were having uh, their 80th anniversary air show at Amberley up in Queensland. 
And I thought, I'm going to go to this. I'm going to go to Amberley for this. this. This is going to be fantastic. So we had all of the arrival notes and everything, getting into an air base and what you're going to have to have, what you weren't going to have to have. I'm going to Brisbane. I've never flown to Brisbane. I've never flown outside the state of Victoria in my life at the States, mm, right? Yeah, right. And uh, I'm flying to Brisbane for crying out loud. You know, this is going to be a real nail-biter. Then Osama bin Laden blew up half of New York and the um, RWF called off their show. But it was actually clashing, that air show. It was clashing with an air show at Scone in New South Wales. So I thought, I've got the plane booked. I'm ready to go. The air show's been cancelled. So I'm going to have to go here. So I booked myself in to go to Scone. And so off I went up to Scone. A lot of decisions to make on the way. On the way back, I made every wrong decision I possibly could have. There was a big band of weather coming across Wagga. And I allowed that band of weather to get in my way. And I say that because I didn't think very well about what I had to do in order to get home that night. Um, First thing I did was land at Young and make a plan B. And that plan B, unfortunately, required me finding the tiny little hamlet of Stock and Bingle in order to get through to Wagga because I needed fuel. So I've got low cloud, reduced visibility, and I'm trying to find a little hamlet on the ground. Mm. Um, I didn't find said little hamlet. Uh, So skirting along low cloud all the time, I managed to reorient myself with where I was on the ground and got into uh, Wagga Wagga with about 700. I had a 750-foot circuit. I had no other visibility. That's where the cloud base was. It was sitting on top of me. And um, I was rattled at this stage, fairly rattled, because I'd had I'd been, you know, had some close encounters with some pretty low cloud, very low visibility. And yeah, it was a bit of a nail biter, but I managed to keep my head and get the thing on the ground at Wagga, where I tied the bloody, this is about midday, where I tied the bloody thing down, went and booked myself into a motel, went to the pub. By 3.30 of the afternoon, it was cab okay as far as the eye could see. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I now couldn't fly anywhere because I had a beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I spent overnight in, um, in Wagga. And the ne- very next day, the cloud was still fairly low. And I, was, I, I couldn't get through Albury, which was the plan to go through Albury airspace. I couldn't get through there. And I, I got a bit confused about how am I going to get home from here? And... One of the smart things I did was talk to the local CFI, who said to me, head west, go to Tokemore and head from Tokemore down through Shep and it cuts the high ground out, you'll be fine with this cloud base. Well, I had to land at Tokemore because that cloud rolled in again and forced me down onto the ground at Tokemore in the pouring rain. At this stage, I get out of the archer and I was just beside myself, absolutely despondent. I thought, am I ever going to get this bloody aeroplane home? I've had enough of low cloud and rubbish visibility. I just want to get back to Moorabbin. But I had learnt at that stage, look at the forecast, read the forecast a bit better. Yeah. And it was saying it was going to move through. So I sat there on the ground at Tokemore and I waited until the cloud rolled through and until I thought that there, it would stay clear at Tokemore for at least an hour, a minimum of one hour. Now I thought, right, I'm going to fly south for 30 minutes. If I fly south for 30 minutes and I think I can't go any further, I can at least turn back to Tokemore. Worst case scenario, I've got to turn back to Tok. 
Well, the weather just get, kept getting better and better and better the further south I went. By the time I was over Shepparton, I could almost see the, the uh, well, you could see the range from there. And the range was clear and I thought, this is really cool. So down to Mangalore, Mangalore coming through the Kilmore Gap and over the top of Sugarloaf Reservoir, I was just so stoked. I'm back a day late, but I'm back alive and I haven't bent the aeroplane and I have learned so much from this flight that it's not funny. Yeah, totally. I learned all of the things that I did wrong on that flight. And, yeah, you know, just a few hours earlier, I'd been thinking that I was spending the night in Tarkmore. And um, the fact that I had got back was my first flight away was pretty pleasing, even though it was a day late. And I had to explain to the guys at the school. I'd actually rung them and told them I'm not going to make it home. And they just cancelled all the bookings on the aeroplane. They couldn't do anything else. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I sat down with my instructor later on and said, you know, this is what I did. This is what happened. And he said, well, you made your decisions in the air. But, yes, the one going to the pub at Wagga was <laughs> You didn't read the <laughs> forecast properly, did you? Yeah. And I ran into another crew later on um, that I'd seen up at uh, Scone, and I knew they were heading for Moravan too. It was about a year later, and I said to them, oh, where did you guys have to overnight? Well, we didn't. We got home to Moravan on, on day one. How could you possibly have got through all of that cloud? And they said, we didn't. We flew over the top of it at 8,500 feet. It's clear up there. Uh, where were you? You weren't <laughs> down in the muck, were you? Yes, I was yeah. down in the muck. <laughs> Feel like a proper Charlie. So I learned a lot. I learned heaps. Yeah, sometimes it just takes a uh, like experience like that to learn all these things, and you're like tick, tick, tick. I've learned that lesson, that lesson, that lesson, and I'm not going to well, do that again. Learning the lessons is okay. Learning how to apply the lessons is a different thing. Yeah. Um. So yeah, ever since then, when dealing with um crook weather, I've always had my back doors. If I can't read the, read the forecast properly, um, if what is your plan B? Don't land it young to make plan B. Uh, although I do still have a philosophy that if you haven't made a plan B, it's better to be on the ground making a plan B than trying to make it up in the aeroplane as you go along in bad weather. Yeah, totally. Right, because you'll get distracted from the cloud and you'll be worried about charts and things. Where am I going to go from here? And you look up to a grey windscreen and my God, you know, I was just flown straight in the cloud. So if you don't know what you're doing, if you're under pressure, find an airport, put it down, make up plan B on the ground. So now for the final fun question. What would your dream flight you could take just for fun be? Oh, boy, that's a beauty. Dream flight I could take just for fun I think would be somewhere around Alaska. Yeah, that would be pretty awesome. I think that I would like to get my backside in a Cessna float plane, a 206 float plane or something like that. And then, of course, severely clear weather. In North America, they call it severe clear. They don't actually have the term cab okay. Yeah, right. So they call it <laughs> severe clear. You know, in severe clear, just blasting around Alaska, I think, in a, a float plane. I know people have done it. And, yeah, they're all saying, what are you doing here? Get over there and do it. Do it, do it. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, totally. Yeah, the killjoy is always the bank manager who says, no, you're not going. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, yeah, I think I think that would be it. Yeah, yeah. that would be awesome. I'd love to um, get over there, get down. And I did a float plane trip on uh, out of Strawn in Tasmania a few years ago, and that was – that was a pretty memorable flight. Yeah, wow. And then again, flying around, as I mentioned earlier, around New Zealand, around the fjords, down in the fjords, and uh, around the uh, river valleys and things like that, following the braided rivers along, knowing how to do it without crunching yourself into the uh, side <laughs> of a mountain or something along those lines. Yeah. And I, I think Alaska would be a combination of all that. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, yeah, 
Yeah, I reckon that would be just for the hell of it. Yeah, I'd like to get a good long squirt around Alaska in a float plane. Well, that's an awesome plan. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Not a problem, Chris. I've had great fun too. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for sharing your story as well as letting people know how they could get into aviation journalism, you know, how to have fun with aeroplanes. It sounds like you have a ton of fun and I think everyone's goal should be, you know, to have fun. I, I, I don't know whether I said it earlier here or not, but instructors, a good instructor will teach you how to fly an aeroplane. A brilliant instructor will teach you how to have fun with it. Yeah, for sure. Right. And that is important. I always like to quote an example during a BFR a few years ago, an instructor had me over Western Port Bay and he gave me a task. I had to fly from um, from just south of Hastings. I had to fly to Devil Bend Reservoir and then over the beach at Franklin, at Franklin, at Frankston, but I wasn't allowed to be above 500 feet AGL at any stage. Yeah, wow. And he just folded his hands and said, show me how you're going to do that. When you think of the expanse of Frankston and the fact that you cannot fly over that at less than 1,000 feet, yeah, he said to me, how are you going to do it? I sat there and I thought about it a little bit. And I realised the golf course at Frankston goes all the way to the coast. And I looked at him and said, it's a golf course, isn't it? He said, yep, let's go, mate. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Down the 500 yeah. feet, blasting along there over the golf course and burst out over the bay. Awesome. 500 feet, AGL the whole way. So that's the guy who, who who did say at the time, he said, mate, there's no law. says you can't have a bit of fun when you're doing BFRs or stuff like that. So if you can do it legally and it's safe to do it and you worked out how to do it, just do it. Do it. Yeah. 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 I agree. <laughs> Definitely. Aeroplanes are about fun. Mm, Go and do that. Totally. Well, yeah. Thanks again. Not a problem, Chris. Thanks for your um, your time, and uh, I hope it all goes well with your flight training, and maybe we'll see you about out Lily Dale. If yeah. you have one a formation endorsement, come out and see us. Oh, that would be awesome. We'll get you one. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> oh, also, all your listeners should grab a copy of this, uh, which no one can see um, except Hitch. <laughs> no one can see anyway. He's holding up an issue of Australian Flying Magazine. He's holding yeah. up several. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, and so, yeah, everyone should grab a copy. Uh, yes, Definitely. Or we'll catch you online. Ah, yes. Digital. Sounds good. All right. Thanks again, Hitch. Thanks, Chris. Good on you, mate. See ya. Thanks for listening to episode eight of Up and Away. Once again, don't forget to subscribe as well as follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Ah, and get yourself a copy of Australian Flying Magazine. It's a great publication. I'm sure you'll love it. So definitely get yourself a copy. See you next week.